All right, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts here on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary seeks to provide in-depth, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life so that we can follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. And it's made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So if you're one of those who donates to support this work, thanks a ton for your generosity. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 down through verse 34. It's the record of Paul's uh, ministry in the city of Athens. And so let's just set that in context. We're still in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And we've said that the second journey really takes place around late AD 50 through 54. And it focuses on, at least Luke's account of it focuses on Macedonia and Greece. Well, Luke has already given us three snapshots so far of Paul's ministry in Macedonia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea. Now, Paul has sailed south to Achaia, that is to Greece, uh, the name for Greece, the Roman provincial name for Greece in Paul's day was Achaia. And so he's sailed from Macedonia down south to Athens. Timothy and Silas and Luke have all stayed behind in Macedonia, so Paul is now in Athens alone. And Athens is the most famous Greek city, right? It's noted for famous philosophers like Socrates and Plato, but that was in its heyday, and its golden age is now past. Socrates and Plato lived 400 years earlier. Even though that's the case, it's still a prestigious city, and it's still a key center, if not the key center for Greek learning and life. So here's Paul in the city of Athens, and here's what happens, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. And so Paul is there alone in Athens. He's waiting for, it says them, that's for uh, Silas and Timothy, to whom he's given instructions for them to join him as soon as they feel like it's a good time to leave Thessalonica and Berea. And so he's waiting for them in Athens. And notice what's happening. His spirit was being provoked within him as he's observing all the idols and temples in the city of Athens. And provoked could mean like provoked to anger, but it could also just mean stirred up, aroused in some sort of way. And it seems like it was aroused to really preach the gospel to them and to help these people come to know the truth. And the reality is, Paul has experienced idolatry in a lot of other cities, but Athens seems to have like exceeded them all in some regards. In fact, some writers from uh, the time said this, Paul Sinaeus said, Athenians surpassed others in their zeal for religion. Or the Roman writer Lucian said, on every side there are, were altars and victims and temples and festivals. Or another writer, Petronius said, it's easier to find a god there in Athens than a man. And so even though Paul has encountered idolatry in all these Greco-Roman cities that he's been to, Athens seems to have exceeded even the normal Greco-Roman city for the amount of temples and statues and festivals and idols. And Paul's spirit is being stirred up, provoked in some way within him. And so the result is he begins to really engage wholeheartedly in preaching Jesus. Look at verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Good summary of the way Paul's ministry probably went in most of the cities he went to. So on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons. He 
debates. He thinks it through. He shows evidence. He dialogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, God-fearers in the synagogues. And then during the week in the marketplace, every day, he's doing the same thing. He's reasoning and helping them think these things through. And so he's in the town center, the forum, the marketplace. He's in the synagogue and he's preaching Jesus. And there he is in the home of Greek philosophy. And so it shouldn't surprise us what happens next. Verse 18. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. Some saying, what would this scavenger of tidbits want to say to us? And others saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so in Paul's preaching in the marketplace, he's attracted the uh, the attention of some groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, which were two of the major philosophical schools of the day. And th they are kind of having some conversation with him, and they're not reacting super positively to his message. Let's just clarify who these two groups are. The Epicureans uh, oftentimes are misunderstood in our modern age as we look back on them because for the Epicureans, their great goal in life was happiness. And we hear that, and indeed, some in their day heard that, and they took it as pleasure, just having a blast while you last sort of approach to life. That's not what philosophical Epicureanism was really ultimately about. Uh, by happiness, they said that the way to be happy was to live in sync, live in harmony with the laws of nature, with the way the world was designed to function. That's what they meant by that. And so in their mind, uh, the, the happiest beings were the gods who lived most in sync with the way things actually were. And so that was their goal. Uh, they wanted to avoid maybe even some strong emotions and all of that uh, and just live kind of this mild life. And Epicureanism, though it was popular, really only attracted the more upper class and wealthy who could uh, give time to just relaxing and reading and thinking and all of that. And that that's really who the Epicureans were. They tended to be materialists in their philosophy. Everything was made up of uh, atoms. They actually got that bit of uh, information correct. Everything was made up of small little bits of matter, including the gods themselves. And matter really was eternal. And so that's sort of Epicureanism at a real general level. Stoic philosophers, super well-known, uh, actually got their name from meeting in the Stoa, uh, kind of like a giant porch-like building area where it was popular to meet and carry on conversation and debate, and that's where they got their name uh, because that's where their founder, Zeno, liked to hold conversations and teach philosophy. And so uh, the Stoic philosophers tended to be those who um, viewed really a disciplined approach to life and all of that. Uh, they were pantheists, and everything really was governed by fates. Uh, Self-denial was the key thing. That leads to the highest end in life. And for the Stoics, there was no afterlife. The soul really re rejoined with the, the great pantheistic one, right? And that's sort of who the Stoics were. Well, some of these philosophers encountered Paul, had some conversations with him, and they, they were reacting in kind of various ways. Some were saying, what would this scavenger of tidbits want to say? 
this idea of scavenger of tidbits, sometimes translated idle babbler, but it's really more this idea of scavenger. Uh, the, the word literally referred to a seed picker and referred to birds who would pick up seeds right around town. Then it came to be used of like the poor who picked up scraps after the harvest or scraps in the marketplace. And then it finally could be applied to those who picked up scraps of other people's ideas. They just went around talking to people, listening to things, and they picked up this little tidbit of idea and this little scrap of an idea here. And and so it's really a disparaging term, right? And so Paul's looked at as this guy doesn't have any of his own thoughts. He's just a scavenger of ideas. Others... Luke tells us, said this, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, um, strange gods is the idea, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And it appears that they seem to think that um, by Jesus and the resurrection, Paul means two separate gods, Jesus and Anastasis. Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. And so he's preaching two kind of new, foreign, strange deities. And as a result, they wanted to know more. And so verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you're proclaiming. They're just curious. They want to understand for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke throws in a kind of parenthetical tidbit to explain why this is the case. Verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So sort of this little parenthetical side to say, this is fairly common in Athens. These people just love to hear new ideas, discuss new ideas, think through new ideas. And so here comes Paul teaching something that sounds different and strange and new, and they want to learn more about it. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. What's the Areopagus? Well, in older um, Athenian history, it was the name that was given to the ruling body of the city that met on a particular hill there in Athens. Uh, over the course of time, as um, more of a democratic approach to ruling the city of Athens held sway, the Areopagus sort of lost influence and eventually sort of faded into the background. Well, now under Roman rule, it's sort of been revived as a way to kind of have local control over their own city under Roman authority. And so it refers to the kind of ruling council of the city. And we don't know whether they still met on that same hill in the first century or not. Nevertheless, traditionally, it has been viewed uh, that Paul gave his speech before the Areopagus on that hill, which uh, Areopagus refers to that hill or Mars Hill because the Roman god of war is Mars, whereas Ares is the Greek name for the god of war. And so uh, if you ever hear the phrase Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, it's referring to the hill where the Areopagus at least originally met and possibly it's where they met on this particular occasion when Paul spoke to them. At this sermon on quote-unquote Mars Hill or before the Areopagus is actually commemorated still to this day in Athens with a inscription there on the base of the hill in Athens that really gives the Greek text of Paul's words to the Areopagus. Whether on that hill or not, what we need to picture at this point in Acts 17 is Paul before the ruling council 
of the city. So these are the elite kind of ruling members of the city of Athens. Verse 22 says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, he's standing before the ruling council, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. He begins with a polite address, and he actually uses a word that is somewhat ambiguous. When he says, I see that you are very religious in all respects, it's a word that has, on one hand, it could mean like religious in a positive sort of way. On another hand, it could also mean superstitious. And thus, it's ambiguous enough to, to be true. And Paul really, in some regards, is complimenting them for their religiousness, even though from his perspective, it seems kind of superstitious. So I see that you're religious in all respects. Verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, in other words, as I was going through your city and their temples and there's idols and there's right all the, the stuff of their worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And so Paul is actually going to take uh, this altar to an unknown God and use it as a springboard to say, let me introduce you to him. You might be ignorant of him and you don't want to offend any of the gods. I get that. Uh, that's a credit to your being very religious. Let me introduce you to this unknown God. One writer of the day, Philastrus, actually acknowledges the Athenians did this. He said this. He said, uh, at Athens, where altars are set up in honor even of unknown gods. And so they're so interested in not offending any of the gods, they don't want to leave anyone out, that they set up altars even to unknown gods. Paul has seen this in town, so he uses that as a point of connection and contact with the ruling council there of the city. And so he's going to introduce them to this unknown God, who is it? And so Paul is going to go on and point that out to him. He says this in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So he introduces them to the unknown God by acknowledging that he's the creator of all things. He made the world and everything that is in it. This is one of those places where Paul's message has a little bit of contact with, say, the philosophies of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Remember, that's what led to this uh, conversation being had with the ruling council anyhow. Uh, and it also has some significant points of difference, of contrast. The Epicureans believed that matter was really the fundamental thing, and it was eternal, and all things, including the gods, were made up of matter. Um, and Paul doesn't believe that. He's the maker of all things. He's the one who stands outside of all things as the creator of it all. The Stoics, they could frequently speak of God as creator, and they would typically think of Zeus in that role, and yet at the same time, they thought of many gods, and they were a bit of pantheists, um, so that, uh, that creation itself wasn't so much distinguished from God as maybe an emanation from or an expression of God. Again, for Paul, well, no, that's not quite right either, that creation is distinct from God, and God is distinct from creation, and he stands over against it, and he brought it into existence. And so God is the creator of all that exists. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's in charge, and he rules it, and he governs it. And notice, he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He's not served by 
by human hands like he needs anything. Instead, he's the, the giver of life and breath and all things. And so temples, sacrifices, idols, all that stuff that is scattered all throughout their cities, that is uh, completely unnecessary. You're not going to really find God there. He's not limited by those things. And this is a very Jewish conception, a very biblical conception of God, that God is not the one who can be contained in temples or in statues or anything like that. Paul goes on and he says in verse 26 that, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. And so all humanity has derived from uh, one human family that God created, one man. Um, and God brought all mankind on the face of the earth from that point. And God's the one that determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. God's the one that controls history. History isn't random. History isn't cyclical. History isn't left to chance. History is not governed by fates. History is governed by God. And God's the one who uh, uh, determines people's appointed times. God's the one who determines the boundaries of nations and all that. Ultimately, he's over all of that. And he's the one that, that determines what's going to happen on the world. And he did all this, in verse 27, to this end, that they would seek God. So he created human beings, and he created people that they would seek him, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. And so God's not far, he's not distant, he's not out there, he's not hard to find. Uh, God created the world and he created humanity and he governs it all with the hope that human beings would find him um, and that they would look for him, even though he's not far off uh, from each one of us, that he's near and he's present and he's in this world. Um, verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. And some have seen in that first half of verse 28, in him we live and move and exist, an allusion to a, a, a writing from Epimenides, although it's pretty vague and pr probably not. It's just such a short statement and it's pretty common. And so it's more just this statement from Paul, it seems, that, that God's not far from us, that we're surrounded by him, that we go about our life and we move about our life in him, surrounded by his presence. And then Paul does go on in the second half of verse 28 to quote one of their poets, a poet by the name of Erastus of Soli, which is actually not far from Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And that poet said, for we also are his descendants. We're his offspring. Like we're the ones who God made. And so he quotes the Stoic poet, again, as a point of connection with his audience, even though he understands things differently than they do. Well, Paul continues and draws an implication then. If, if human beings are the offspring of the divine, guess what? Then we can learn some things about the design from human beings. And so here's the implication he derives, verse 29. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. Like, look at us. We're not... We're not mute stone. We're not, you know, gold or silver. We're living, moving, breathing beings. We ought to realize that the divine is somewhat reflected in us since that's who we are. Uh, and so 
Paul draws then the implication of his message. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, having overlooked the times in the past, and it doesn't mean that God just immediately carte blanche, wiped those things off, gave them grace, forgave all their, it just means that there is this time period in human history that God passed over. And now, uh, now you're no longer ignorant. Now you can no longer say there's an unknown God because I'm telling you who he is. So God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. And so there was a time when God's truth was limited and located in the Jews. If you wanted to know it, you needed to come to the Jewish people. Now um, God is calling people of all different backgrounds to himself and calling them everywhere to repent, which means to change their mind and change their behavior. And why is he doing that? Verse 31, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. And so Paul ends his his speech before the council members, uh, pointing towards Jesus and pointing towards the judgment that the man who's going to be the one to actually judge and rule the world in righteousness is this man that he appointed. And this idea of judgment has two senses, I think. One is that there is going to be accountability for your behavior. Um, And again, that contrasts with the Stoics and the Epicurean approach to life, um, where Death was just the end, like an eternal sleep, right? Um, there was nothing beyond that. Well, no, there is going to be a uh, accountability for our behavior, even post-death. But the other sense of judgment is th- this full biblical sense of uh, to rule, uh, to bring justice to the world. And notice he's going to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to rule the world and he's going to bring his righteousness to the world. And he's going to do so through a human being. Remember, he's clarifying these strange deities that he's supposedly preaching, Jesus and the resurrection. Well, this is Jesus. He's a man whom he has appointed. And what's the proof that he's going to be the judge and ruler of the world? Well, he furnished proof to all people. How? By raising him from the dead, um, by resurrecting him, which again goes, flies in the face of all Greek philosophy. Uh, there was no resurrection. Why would there be? Uh, the body is somehow tainted or evil, and so resurrection couldn't possibly be a good thing, right? There's this Greek saying among some of the Greek thinkers, soma, sema, the body's a tomb. The goal of anything, if there is any sort of afterlife, the goal is certainly not to be an embodied afterlife, but to be released from the body into sort of like um, the great spirit world. That's sort of Plato's idea that you just kind of merge back with the world of the forms. You know, the Stoic idea that you just go and rejoin the the great divine energy that lies in the background of all things. But certainly there's no resurrection. Um, but for Paul and for the Jews, the hope of the world was in resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. And humans are always meant to be embodied beings. And so he's furnished proof that there's going to be a man who's going to rule and judge the world in righteousness by raising him from the dead. Well, uh, once they heard this, that sort of put an end to the speech. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff and others said, We shall hear from you again concerning this. Again, mixed response. Some are mocking and laughing at resurrection. You're crazy. That's worthless. That's silly talk. Others are curious. We want to hear more about this. And 
Uh, this particular message that Paul gives on, uh, before the Areopagus is not really a formal sermon. It's not even really like an evangelistic sermon. He's brought there because he's been, uh, they've said that he's preaching strange deities and they're curious about that. So he's just trying to clarify what he's preaching. And what he's preaching is the one true God uh, and his right-hand man, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. That's what he's preaching. And so he's really, this is really sort of a clarifying message to the ruling leaders of the city. And the reaction, again, is sort of this mixed reaction. Not a total failure. Look what happens at the end, verse 33. So Paul went out from among them, but some joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So a member of the council actually believed Paul's message about Jesus and became a follower and joined Paul and believed in Jesus and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so there was a handful of believers there as a result of Paul's work in Athens, but it wasn't certainly a super powerful ministry in Athens and it didn't seem like he had um, a super great response there, but it wasn't a total failure. He did have some response there in town. Now, before we leave this section there in Athens, again, let me just offer just a couple thoughts by way of reflection. I really think the heart of this snapshot there of Paul's ministry in Athens is this. It's to seek the true God. Here in Athens, Paul's spirit is provoked by all the false gods all around the city. And there's just so many of them. And the city is so confused about who God is. They even have an altar to the unknown God. They don't want to offend any of the gods or leave anyone out. And Paul wants them to seek the true God. So in his speech, that's who he's telling. Look, you're looking for the unknown God. Let me introduce you to him. He's the true God. He's the creator God. He's the God who rules all things. He's the God who made human beings. He's the God in whose likeness we human beings are made. And thus we reflect his, his nature. Um, he's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's who he is. And Paul's really implicit appeal is to seek the true God. And I, I just think that's such an important message for us to think through increasingly, at least in the Western uh, context, we live in a pluralistic world with all sorts of religions and all sorts of spiritual ideas. And if you challenge any of those ideas and say that uh, that's false and this is true, you're viewed with deep suspicion and even viewed as, you know, perpetrating hostility. Um, and yet, uh, Paul would want us ourselves, but also to us ourselves to help others do the same, to seek the true God. There is one true God, uh, the God who is the maker of all things. And that God is the one who appointed Jesus to be Lord and ruler and judge of all things. And he furnished proof by raising him from the dead. That's the truth. And he's the true God. And our job is both to seek the true God and to promote and preach the true God and help other people do that. Now, we should do that the way Paul did, with respect, uh, with sensitivity, with trying to find points of connection, as well as points of contrast, right? In the message that we give, we should be willing to um, honor some of their customs, and yet we shouldn't shy away from pointing out those points of difference where uh, the truth of Jesus and the truth of the Creator God stand in contrast to the ideas and the thoughts of the culture around us.